Welcome to the Spy Who Raised Me podcast, conversations between a daughter and her father. Yes, you've guessed it, he was a spy. I'm Jane Craigie, and I'm here with my dad, Ian Craigie. In the early 1960s, um, well, late 1950s actually, my dad, um, after a three-year spell in the RAF, um, working in communications and intelligence gathering. He left the RAF and joined the tax office in Bucky, <laughs> which, which is quite a move, Dad. Can you tell me, because I've never asked this question, why did that happen? I'm really glad it did, because that's where you met Mum. Yes, um, yes. But how, how did you leave the RAF and the, the, the glamour of Hong Kong and Borneo to move back to Bucky? And it's happened, Bucky, and... Well, that that was uh, uh, partly the reason for that was that that uh, your grandfather, my father, had uh, a brother, John Craigie, who was brought up in Rothes and was an income tax inspector in Inverness. So at the time that I that I uh, was looking to to do something f- with my life. I had a conversation with with him in Inverness, and uh, he said, he said, oh, why don't you join the Inland Revenue? I know the the inspector down there, Mr. Monroe, in in Bucky, and I'm sure if you if you applied for that, you would have a chance of getting in. You see, so I thought about it for a while, and then um, decided to. To give it a go, and uh, see that was that was um, an interesting time anyway in a fishing community, with fishing changing and uh, the aftermath of the war uh, of the first of the Second World War, which which uh, still affected the the um, community. So anyway, I applied, applied, and they accepted me. Um, and there we started in uh, in uh, Bucky Tax Office, and one of the big uh, was a thing um, at, at that time they had Schedule A, which meant that landowners, um, some of them very large landowners like the, the Countess of Seafield, had to pay tax on a annual basis. So. Um, Countess of Seafield's estates. I mean, she had thousands of acres, and she um, she uh, had uh, her her tax district was Bucky, so we dealt with all the Schedule A work for the Countess of Seafield, and um, so that was very interesting because it brought you into contact with uh, with with. Uh, almost nobility they were then with huge amounts of land and, and so on. I think we still have, have many thousands of acres but but and the other thing that, that was um obvious and in Bucky was that the fishing fleet, I mean they had a really uh, active fishing fleet, small harbour, uh, a lot of the boats 
locally built at the Joan Yard in Bucky. And um, they, uh, they used to be very religious at that time. So, and some steam steamboats and some uh, just engines and so on. And they used to they used to queue up on a on a Sunday, um, just before midnight. So they would all get steamed up, and you would go down and have a look, and there would be thirty or forty boats uh, waiting to go. Of course, they couldn't go out because it was the Sabbath day. And they had to wait till um, till midnight, and then they sounded the they're all clear, and off they chugged out into the out into the North Sea. Um, sight in itself, especially if, if the if the um, north wind was blowing up the waves and and there was a neap tide or something, it was really scary going out. I have to apologise, we've got an old Jack Russell here who's who's sort of snoring and sniffling. So if you're wondering what that is, it isn't me and it isn't my dad. So Dad, your time in Bucky Mm -hmm. ended. Um, You'd had enough of taxation. Taxation. And that was then the start of your GCHQ career and also the start of your married life. And what did you do? What can you tell us about what you did at Bow Manor and in those early years working for GCHQ? What was your role? Well, I mean, we were, it was, it was a Cold War era. And so the main preoccupation with, with the intelligence community and also, uh, also the politicians and so on I mean everyone was so was so um, keen to get information about what Russia was doing and other communist uh, countries so we had that was our job mainly to, to try as best we could to get information that would that would explain troop movements and so on and so forth and that was that was quite interesting because because uh, I mean I don't think this is comes under the security, um, you know, s- secrecy. <laughs> Let's uh, hope not. Otherwise, Let's we're both going to end up set in prison in after prison. podcasting. Exactly. So 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 long ago. I mean, a lot of the a lot of the the um, uh, information about that era is commonplace. It's appeared in all sorts of books by Stella Remington and other authors. You know. But anyway. Um, that used to get some odd uh, things happening like the Russians were not that well trained at certain stages and when they started foraging about in in Europe um, they would have exercises in, in certain areas and they used to get lost but they used to get lost, and I mean, in Europe, somewhere. in Europe somewhere, and uh, we were trying to find out where they were conducting exercises. So you would you would hear a Russian voice somewhere saying, saying, "Oh, I know, we don't know where we are in Russian, of course." And uh, oh, but wait a minute, there's a signpost here. So they would re- read they would read <laughs> out what whatever the signpost said. Oh yeah, forty. 40 kilometres to whatever it was, Brussels. 
so off they would they would uh, travel again and that because that was VHF they were using uh, it was line of sight and it but it used to bounce off the ionosphere sometimes so you get that uh, that odd sort of thing happening that you could listen to people in the middle of Russia who were using VH, VHF and you should never have found it but because it was bouncing off the ionosphere you'd pick it up uh, so that that was quite interesting so you must have had teams of people sat at desks with radios and yeah, headphones. I mean what, that, what did the what did the um, work environment look like? Well, that it was just that it was a number of people sitting uh, with various tasks that uh, looking for certain transmissions. Um, you can imagine during the um, when Khrushchev was was uh, in control. And uh, Kennedy was was the uh, and that awful um, sequence of events had just about finished with with uh, nuclear weapons being being set up in Cuba. Well, you can imagine then how much how much they um, depended on intelligence to know where where people were going because no one really knew that. They had submarines with uh, nuclear warheads uh, going towards uh, Cuba. So, so that was all. Fortunately, um, Kennedy was quite a, you know, he was quite a hawk in, in, in those terms. So, so. Uh, and and, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm I'm intrigued as a as a relatively junior member of staff in in that environment. Mm-hmm. Um, what sort of insight did you have I mean you you're obviously very knowledgeable about the situation and some of that's probably been gathered over the years as you've learned more and taken an yeah. interest but yes at that stage when you were a young man in your mm-hmm. 20s in that environment at the coal face mm-hmm. at the listening face yes um trying to crack codes and yeah you know to to pick up a random broadcast from from um, a russian national yes. yeah um what sort of insight did you have into what you were doing strategically and how that fitted into the national um the national need well i mean that was you had enough information to understand what what uh, was involved i mean it may not have been particular information but because you had to be aware of what the possibilities were you had to you had to be given enough information to know that if there was a if there was an intercept say at that time if a huge national crisis and someone and someone realized that they had a submarine or something they'd listen to a submarine they would have to have enough background to be able to translate that into a into an intelligence uh, awareness of what what was happening so it was very much it was very much uh, the, the case that you didn't need to know everything, but you knew enough to be aware of what the targets were that that you were um, you were concerned with and interested in. So it was uh, yeah you you had enough knowledge to know the fuller picture. Yeah, and in terms of skills, Dad, I mean, that takes, you know, to have spent most of your career being secretive and having that integrity and self-discipline not to share, despite, you know, having young children that would 
always be intrigued about what mm. you, you do as well as your friends and family so integrity is one of the skills um, practical skills I know you've talked about some some particularly um, insular people that were very yes. good at maths and, yeah. and very happy to be listening to yeah. Morse code and, and the other transmissions and just happy in their world mm. listening to and in, interpreting yeah. Um, what they were listening to or receiving and and then decoding it. What other skills did good intelligence officers that were either at the listening stations or those that were much more diplomatically engaged, what, what were the skills that were needed? Well, there's, as always with intelligence, it's a, it's a framework of inputs, if you like, with, with, various, with various skills at various stages. And I think I think uh, what we were doing, you had to have an awareness of, for example, troop, troop movements, because if you were searching a, a band of frequencies for, for some sort of target, um, you would you would have to have some uh, indication, perhaps from other intelligence sources, that there was movement here or there was there was uh, flights taking off here, so that you were primed. So you knew roughly, you know, in that huge spectrum of um, of uh, awareness, what was happening, and and that would feed through the intelligence uh, uh, agencies. And I mean, these the people you're talking about who who were um, looking at codes and so on, they were very uh, unique because they most of them had most of them had. Um, uh, been through university, of course, and some of them could speak could speak languages and were fluent in languages, but they were very very insular. Uh, they didn't share the information they had. They didn't have much. the The work, the working environment was very much a person sitting at a desk, trying to trying to crack some some type of transmission. I mean, Alan Turing was, was, he was incredible what he achieved. But there were lots of those people who were sitting, trying to break into, into enciphered uh, broadcast and so on. It would help computers. Latterly, computers have done so much to, uh, to be able to, to uh, understand what, what uh, people are doing. But it was that, it was very much uh, parts of intelligence gathering, quite often isolated. You didn't know what was happening there. But in the end, because you were you were at uh, at a point where you could you could intercept uh, broadcasts and so on, you had to have some of that background so that you could do that mm. and do it comprehensively and with some knowledge of what the outcome could have been and so on. And and your um, the last thing you are is insular, so I can I can't imagine you sitting at one of those listening stations with headphones on without thinking I need more from my career than this. And yeah. I suppose that's a good segue into your next move, um, which was um, over to Cyprus, which mm-hmm. and and you departed the UK to yes. your posting in Cyprus with GCHQ. Mm-hmm in um, February 1965. So tell me about that journey and, and also about the Cyprus that you arrived into. Yeah, that, that was um, 
uh, as you say, it was it was in the early sixties, um, and uh, Cyprus was a totally different different experience to uh, what I'd had in in the UK. It was a different target for one thing, and of course that at that at that stage, um, oil was becoming of prime importance to to um, to the um, civilized world, to Europe, to America, to, you know, I mean, it was just almost all to do with oil, how to procure it, how to make sure that, that the supply was ongoing. And of course, the Middle East is one of the biggest producers of, uh, of oil. Saudi Arabia produced huge, huge amounts of, um, of uh, high quality grade oil, but in Iraq and Syria and so on. They they had uh, they had huge uh, reservoirs of, of oil too, which they were exploiting. But the problem there was that there were other political machinations that were going on that the Russians would would have wanted to get as much oil as possible from that situation, and and there was just a lot of competition to secure supplies of oil that were that were as permanent as, as they could be, but were also safe. So I suppose Cyprus from a, I mean, this is, this is all to do with the, the physical location. Cyprus, yes. stuck out, an island stuck out in the Mediterranean, yes. Yes. was logistically um, and strategically in a good position for you to, to have an intelligence yes. office or for GCHQ to have exactly. an intelligence office. It was in a, it was in a good uh, being... Um, an island too was an advantage, and and the fact that it was clo- reasonably close to um, Iraq and to Syria and to the Lebanon and so on, because that was all, uh, uh, you know, an area of interest for yes. for us, the Brits Sounds and the Americans. Very familiar as well. Very Here familiar. we are, five and a half decades on. Yeah. And the same, same um, issues. Are still existing the same geography absolutely um, absolutely and, and it's over the same some of the same factors power too. oil yeah. power oil um, money I mean look at Saudi Arabia how much they've uh, controlled the politics of the Middle East and in Iraq and Syria and uh, to some extent uh, Turkey it's all been to do with 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 that securing supplies of, of oil, natural gas, and and so on. And as I say, Cyprus was in a very uh, convenient position with with the um, w- with the whole political scene and economic scene in the Middle East changing so uh, radically. And also, you you arrived in Cyprus at a time where the island was in conflict as well. So it mm. was it was round about. I don't know when the conflict between the Greek and the Turkish Cypriots started. Yeah. Um, but it must have been around that time. Um, so you had this international global, well, this global yes um, context, and you had also had a very local conflict context as well. That's right. Well, I mean the. Uh... The island, uh, there's always been a lot of uh, uh, strife on the island because of the Greek interest in Cyprus and the Turkish 
uh, interest and when the Ottoman Empire collapsed and that would have been at the time of the of the First World War maybe at the end of the First World War um, the Ottomans ceded uh, control to Britain that was in 1878 I think it was uh, so from that point there was always an issue between Greek Greece and and Turkey as to how that should be should be um, worked out and of course the Cyprus was invaded by the Turks at one stage but prior prior to that there was um, uh, uh, Greece was very keen to to become involved more in, in Cyprus because the, the British had had been uh, in control of politics and the economics of Cyprus for many years since 19 since 1878 with the British uh, High Commissioner and then subsequently the the uh, forces were set up at Akrotiria, Dekelia and so where you were born as it happens and. Um, and that that uh, changed uh, the politics in in uh, Cyprus. It was it was a very odd place to live and work because the the the, the Turkish uh, and and the Greek communities there are very hospitable hospitable people, uh, but they they started uh, realizing that unless something was done. They were losing, losing uh, what they had in Cyprus. So at that at that point, um, the uh, Greek Cypriots decided uh, to to go for enosis with uh, with Greece, which is joining up with Greece and and uh, becoming becoming a strong power with the power of Greece and the power of the Greek Cypriots. So that that put tension on the island because the Turk the, the Turkish uh, people in the in half the island the northern half of the island they were saying well can't have this because Greece then will dictate what happens in Cyprus. So there's an awful lot of um, of unrest and the uh, Greek Cypriots had uh, their their political arm if you like of, of that uprising looking for joining with Greece on a, on a, on a sort of political basis um, Grivas was the name of the of the commander of the terrorists because it was a terrorist organization uh, and uh, a lot of a lot of soldiers were killed Brit- British soldiers and a lot of Turkish uh, soldiers were killed. So there was a good, there was a strong military presence in Cyprus. There was a strong military presence, yes. Military presence. There was um, mainly army, but also air force at um, Akrotiri. So and that that continued right through until until quite a late date. So I would think probably into the eighties. In fact, they the, the still have a station there, uh, but. Yeah, and that that was a very difficult time. Makarios, who was a Greek Orthodox leader, and of course churches have all always got 
you know heavy political sway so uh, the the British government realized that with Makarios and Grivas and the uh, and Ioka which was the name of the uh, the group that were trying to 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 uh, put pressure on on uh, British to give up their interest and for Greece to join with them uh, that that went on for a number of years and it was it was quite dangerous times in, in Cyprus because uh, the uh, Turkish the Turkish enclave at Famagusta um, was was uh, uh, wholly Turkish there were no no Greeks in that area but unfortunately it it was on the main route from Famagusta to the uh, army base at uh, 9th Signal Regiment uh, and also to Akrotiri and Dekele and so on so, so the Turkish um, some of the Turkish uh, people military mainly used to take pot shots uh, from the battlements as we went to work at 9th Signal Regiment Good grief. and I think I've told you before about one instance where we we always went and normally went in convoys or with two or three people in a vehicle to go to work and um, one morning uh, we were going uh, to work quite early and uh, one of the one of the um, operators who was going in another car uh, was shot by a by a Turkish uh, rifleman on the battlements of this Famagusta, uh, and the bullet went through the through the car, ricocheted round the uh, round the chassis, and and went up its rear passage. Gee. And um, and was he okay? He was okay. He was okay. But you can imagine the panic, you know, blood everywhere, going to work and so on. But they got him into hospital. But uh, and that. That was fairly common practice to, to um, you know, hear of shootings from the from the Turkish, Turkish side. So yeah, and the green line as they had it in between north and and uh, and the north and south of the island, uh, that was heavily militarized. So they had they had UN forces there too, I think. And the British Army, they had uh, the Greeks and the Turks. I think they were all sort of there to keep protagonists um, apart. But I mean, the the predicament of the Turkish, uh, the Turkish people who were by far the fewer. If I think there were uh, twice as many Greek Cypriots as there were uh, Turkish Cypriots, and they they were the, the Greek Cypriots. Uh, used to cut off their power supply. Uh, they wouldn't supply fuel, and so it was really difficult for the Turkish people who used to, when any of us went uh, across the Green Line and into north of Cyprus to Cape Andreas or Belipes, places like that, you would get a you would get a fifty or sixty Turkish people with petrol cans. Begging you to to siphon siphon some fuel off so that they could survive. So the whole thing was was um, exacerbated by that that sort of problem on the island. Mm. 
but then they uh, they came to an agreement the the uh, Greeks and the Greek Cypriots and the Turkish Cypriots so and I think it's an uh, uneasy truce there at the moment you could say but still with Greece interested in in being the the main parties you know the main um, power base I mean that's just absolutely fascinating I had no idea that the country or the island mm. on which I was born was was so strategically important mm. um, but I'm also really interested in the human story so your story um, I know you've told me um, the the tale of, of driving over to Cyprus with mum um, you know and this is testament and <laughs> um, an example of another one of your adventurous <laughs> trips so painting the picture 1965 1965. Um, Dad, um, my mum was pregnant with me, and Dad decides it would be a really good idea to drive to Cyprus in an Austin Healy Sprite. Um, with a in, soft top. With a soft top <laughs> in February. So, Dad, February. just tell us the about that journey um, and why you decided to do it, and and also about your you know your life with mum and having me in Cyprus. So that so, mm. so your story. Of living in Cyprus yeah. and getting there. I mean, that was different. Poor Wilma, she was from a background of a, you know, brought up in the fishing community and so on. And she hadn't been a, uh, away from home before, so so we, we sort of discussed it. And, and uh, uh, Cyprus is a very glamorous uh, place to go and work. So, And she was up for that. I mean, she, she realised that... Uh, you know, Cyprus with the sunshine, the beaches, and you know all the rest you can do. So anyway, we, we set off in February, of all times, uh, to to drive across and into um, Italy was uh, was where we were picking up the ferry. So anyway, we went there, and it was heavy snow most of the way, because <laughs> drum brakes on the on the Austin-Hilly Sprite. So they got wetter and wetter and you had to keep pumping the brakes. And uh, over the, uh, I'm trying to think what pass it was, Simplon Pass, one of the one of the passes anyway was horrendous. It, it had a track that they were keeping open, but it was, I guess, about a car and a half's width. So uh, you could see marks on, on this pile of snow, which was, must have been, I don't know, it must have been six, eight feet deep where the snow plows are going through. So the only way you could get past other vehicles, other than getting the one coming uphill to reverse all the way back to the bottom, was to nudge into some of the, some of the little caves that other vehicles had made on the, on the drifts at the side. So I had to say to, to Wilma, hold on, Wilma, we'll, we'll, we're just going to be a bit bumpy here. So as we edge into this, <laughs> <laughs> and Wilma would be saying, oh, I'm feeling sick, I'm feeling sick. So, so it wasn't a time for morning sickness on top not of that morning that sickness, trauma. That's, that's right. So, um, but anyway, we got, we got through that and down the other side, and then it became, we, we, we drove down the, eastern side of the western side of Italy all the way down to Naples 
What an adventure. Oh, it was fantastic. And then we, we booked in at the... I kept saying to Wilma, you'll be all right, we'll, f- we'll find a nice hotel in Naples. So uh, we, we did. We found this wonderful hotel in, in uh, Naples. It was right next to the... It was quite close to the docks. And it was a fantastic place. It marble everywhere. It was, a, it was top end, you know, so... So there was Mother and I ensconced in this wonderful place and and relaxing after the the journey <laughs> and um, we I can remember standing in the balcony overlooking the the docks a fair bit away and I was watching these these women who are a lot of women around we were discussing this saying I wonder what they're doing and um, what they were doing of course they were ladies of the night. And because it was by the docks, they were plying the trade. And and, and Wilma, she said, what are they doing? I said, well, they're, they're waiting for sailors to come off, and then they go and, and uh, spend a couple of hours. And and she was she, she couldn't believe it. She said, nah, that can't be right. That doesn't happen in Bucky. <laughs> doesn't happen in Bucky, you watch. So uh, anyway, so that, Naples, and eventually we... Drove across to uh, Brindisi on the west side of uh, which was great because I mean it was you were kind of getting into Mediterranean uh, country, no snow, no no uh, mountain passes. So we got there and um, and uh, sailed on the Masapia. It was called. Uh, through the did we go through the Corinth Canal? I think so. But that was um, that was quite exciting. And then of course you, you arrived in Cyprus heaven. Oh, it was incredible. You know the the sands, the beaches, the freedom. No people virtually then. Places like Ayanapa, which is now packed full of high rise and so on. Uh, we used to go there fairly often and there was nothing there except for one uh, old fisherman who used to he used to catch some fish come in and barbecue it for you just amazing place and Paralimni I think I've mentioned that to you Jane mm-hmm. where um, they were a little bit hostile there because that was the Greek uh, side and they used to look suspiciously at any any British people who were heading out to Ayanapa and uh, they always seem to be sitting having coffees on the on the verandas of the of the uh, restaurants and uh, it was we'd, we'd been there a, a few weeks and we were chat, chatting to some other people who'd been there longer and were saying an awful lot of people were missing fingers and, and, and hands and so on and said oh yeah that's because they use uh, dynamite to fish so, so they used to light the fuse and chuck it in, and then, and then wait for the con- the concussion of you know the, f- the fish would all be stunned, and then they used to pick them up. But unfortunately, if the fuses were a little bit short, it used to, used to go off. There were a number of people. Yeah, they used to say, "Oh, paralimni," that's where they all have. So that was that was quite interesting, but all changed now. I mean, you look at Ayanapa now in photographs, just so, so different. And what were your enduring memories about living in, in that community? Because you've always been somebody that 
doesn't just live the expat life you know during all of our mm. upbringing you've you've never um just tied yourself to the embassy and to the diplomatic community and the military community you've always gone out to explore um the country that you live in but also the culture within which... and, and the people yeah 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 well that that was interesting because we we um the second the second uh house we lived in was in uh, Famagusta and of course that as I said earlier that that was a mixture of of, uh, of Greek Cypriots and this this uh, Turkish enclave which is quite close to it and that was interesting in itself because I was I was I bought a BMW there a new one it was I mean it was such an easy place it was a theme there it was a fast, theme fast cars fast and <laughs> and available and cheap because there was no tax so and this guy Costas um, who had a, his BMW agency um, within sight of the flat we lived in it's a great big flat on the second floor uh, and um, I I started uh, looking at the cars there and saying oh that looks good that looks good so in, in the end we, we bought this BMW but Kostas, who was Greek, he was an interesting guy because he had friends in the Turkish uh, enclave and he used to play football. And uh, he was telling me the story one day over a, a few glasses of Ujo. Uh, he was saying, oh, I used, to, I used to play there, he said, but he said, you got, as the years went past, you had to be careful. He said, and there's one Turkish defender there we used to play against. He was an enormous guy and he was tough. He said in one, that I can remember playing, playing one match against him in the Turkish, in the Turkish enclave. And he said I was getting fed up with this chap every time I, I uh, attacked goal. This this huge Turkish guy just crunched me. And he said I was flattened so many times. He said so I got fed up. So in the end, I waited until he was running past me, and I and I tripped him up, and he came down like a like a tree, and he was so mad. He said he was so mad he'd have killed me. So he said I had to run, run round the the the, the Turkish um, enclave, and with this huge Turk coming after me, trying to catch me, he came into the into the Greek. But he didn't. He said he didn't catch me, but it was. It was touch and go. But can you remember that, um, talk about easy, easy living. Uh, we must dig that photograph out of that BMW mm. because I used to park it in a, there was a, a garage underneath the flat and we used to party quite a bit. You were young, you were quite young. So we used to, we used to party. And um, I remember coming back late, late one night, and you had a babysitter. And we came back, and I, I'd had a few, I think. So I parked the car outside instead of in the in the underground garage, and went to bed. And about an hour later, there's this huge bang outside, and uh, I thought, nah, surely not. So this new BMW is sitting there where I parked it, 
with a load of of uh, steel for buildings right through the 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 um, rear window out the front window and this guy who'd been driving a, a trailer load of reinforcing steel lost control that cost us who was who was only 50 yards down the road he he heard it and saw it so he sprints he's sprinting up saying never mind never mind mr craigie he's saying eh, we will buy the car you will get a new car and that's exactly what he did about two weeks later i got a new red bmw what a lovely man lovely man he took i uh, bet there was a there was a they had a scheme <laughs> so he took he took this this one and i said you'd never be able to there's so much damage and he just touched his nose as much to say you wait so it went into the workshops and uh, it was in there for a few weeks and it came back out cv908 was the number uh, the, the and and uh, i was walking past this and i saw this red bmw that looked like a new bmw cv908 so i went in and i said and i said uh, I said that that's my car he said well i told you we would do it and they had some sort of scheme that they didn't have to pay the tax if it was a repair car so he sold it on as a new car so he did well out of so it he did well, well so out of it he did right by you and he did right by he did right by us right and then there was the it's funny how you get uh, uh memories come back in 1960 you were born 66, 67. Um, I used to play tennis with this lovely uh, man who who worked with me, in fact, Jerry Dalton. He was a very um, erudite uh, chap, very clever guy. Played excellent tennis. But anyway, he um, he was in. Um, he one day he, he we were chatting away and he said. Oh, my daughter's coming out uh, tomorrow. Uh, I'll, I've got to go and pick her up at Nicosia Airport. Uh, it's a, I think it was an afternoon flight. So, so I said, all right, yeah, it's cool. And um, so he, um, I saw him uh, when he left, and off he went uh, to pick her up. And it was the saddest story because he uh, he told me afterwards. They, um, he went there and it was obvious that there was something wrong because, you know, the airport staff and so on, they were all fluttering around, uh, telephoning and so on, no mobile phones then. But, uh, and eventually he, um, he went and asked somebody and said, look, is there something wrong? And they said, yeah, we, we, we've lost touch with, uh, with, it was a Boeing. Uh, was it a Boeing? Yeah, it was a Boeing, I think. We've lost touch with the flight. We don't know what's happened. So he um, he um, decided to come back to Famagusta, where he lived, to wait to see what what went on. So I can always remember there was an Alfa Romeo shop. Uh, they sold cars um, just just uh, along from our flat, and he said I went in there and. Uh, I'm, stood waiting and they all had their radios on listening listening and he said that's when i discovered that the plane had gone down 
Mediterranean. He said there was no survivors. They decided it was a terrorist uh, thing. That was 1967. So did that put you all on high alert? Well, it did to some extent, but of course it wasn't. Nobody was had had tuned into that that uh, situation with you know people blowing up flights and so on. But but after the um, after the accident, you were well Wilma's. Wilma's cousin it would have been. Uh, that's, that's my mum. Uh, yeah, yes. mum's cousin. Uh, yeah, yes, your mum's cousin. Got the report of uh, of what what had happened after all the the tests and so on. Did they raise the the? I think they did. I think they got. I'm not sure how they got the information, but anyway, because it was quite deep in the in the med. And anyway, they came back with this uh, seat by seat, um, uh, an explanation of what happened. So, and and one of the passengers was actually sitting on the seat that exploded. 1967. It just 1967. shows all of these, all of these tragedies. They, mm. they continue. They endure yes. nowadays. Um, but I suppose our knowledge and our way of understanding them is yes. much better now with black boxes and That's satellites right. and flight tracking. Whereas back then, piecing together what happened, what had happened. with a terrorist attack would have yeah. been very, very difficult. Very difficult. And, and that was an era, I mean, doing, you know, things like this, podcasts on, on really with their historical issues, mm-hmm. you know, and subjects. Uh, just after my father died in 19, I think it was 1967 it too. Was 67. So, and I had to go back to um, his funeral in in Kingston. So I went back. I flew back, and um, after the funeral, I had to get back to to work, and uh, the flight was from. London to uh, to Ankara, and then and then you got a, a connection down to Cyprus, and as we were coming in to Ankara, I told you the story before, is is you know after the funeral and everything, I was on my way back, so we're coming in to to land at Ankara, and looking out the windows as we landed, and there are tanks everywhere not one or two but I don't know 50 or 60 something like that and they were all strategically placed either side of the runway so on and we're we're asking the the uh, cabin crew what's what's going on look I mean these armed soldiers and, and uh, she said we don't know we don't know so anyway we we landed and um, as soon as we landed and, and uh, disembarked, somebody came and said, there's been a coup it happened last night and that the generals had taken over the country. So... Not uncommon in Turkey. Not uncommon in Turkey. And we were... We were... Uh, we had to stay there for, I think it was two nights, maybe three... And then we got the the uh, it sort of calmed down a bit, I think, and and the coup established itself. 
so we uh, we got the connection to Cyprus. But of course, there was because of the situation, the politics, and so on. Um, we were quite interested in what what Greece was doing and what the Turks uh, were doing too. So. So that added even more complexity to more complexity. the situation. Yeah. Well, one thing, because we're going to round off this podcast in a minute, but one thing I was very interested in when we were um, chatting earlier, Dad, when before the podcast was. You talked about the Morse code. So you said that during your time in Cyprus, one of the things that you were, one of your duties, your team's duty, was to listen to Iraq. Um, and you talked about the 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 Morse code, the clipped Morse code yeah. that the Iraqis were using. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that was uh, because obviously we were did training, and uh, Morse code is one of the skills we had but Morse code is Morse code and and uh, um, you know for anyone who, who reads Morse code anyone can read it if you've done the same sort of but unfortunately in Iraq they used a different form of um, Morse code and it was called box walks and it it meant that, that instead of having definite dots like an S is da 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 da. Uh, they would they would some of the symbols that would crowd together. So you, it was like a totally different language. So we had to learn that when we went to Cyprus. First of all, they put you on a a, a month's course or something to get used to it. And to be honest, I never really got used to it. <laughs> but there were some there were some who were really good at it. They just had that uh, ability to. So um, yeah, so that was that was quite interesting. Oh, absolutely fascinating. Mm. Well, um, I think it's time for your lunch because I've I've kept you here for an hour, and I'm sure the people that are going to be listening to this podcast will be ready to go and have a break themselves. If you join us next time, we'd be very glad to have you. And thank you very much mm. again, Dad.